The Worth a Second Chance podcast tells the stories of young people coming into contact with the justice system and of those who are working to support them. By tapping into the hopes and dreams of young people pushed to the margins of society and by telling the stories of professionals and community members determined to see them succeed, we uncover the real story behind the label of the youth offender. Vincent Chiraldi is the principal investigator for the Justice Lab Youth Justice Projects and is a leader in pairing arts with justice reforms. As director of the District of Columbia's Department of Youth Rehabilitation Services, Chiraldi pioneered partnerships with art organisations in the district's correctional facilities, including award-winning Shakespearean performances by incarcerated youth at the district's Folger Shakespeare Theatre and funding art programs for youth through his YouthLink community programming. In this candid conversation, Vinny shares with us the story of how he came to work in justice reform and what it is that drives him to do the work that he does. We hope you enjoy this chat with Vincent Shirelli as much as we did. Vinny, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, it's an absolute pleasure and an honour. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jess. I always enjoy uh, working with uh, Jesuit Social Services. Yeah, so you've been a great friend to Jesuit Social Services over the years, about three or four years now, um, and to Worth a Second Chance. And we've been lucky enough to learn from you on a number of occasions and have followed mm -hmm. your career as you've achieved credible things in the United States justice system. But for those of you who haven't met you or are not following your work, could you take us back to you know, where your career in the justice space began? Ah, it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, so when I was in college, an undergraduate, I got an internship working in a local juvenile correctional facility, a, a home for boys and girls. It was in the community, so it wasn't locked. And I just kind of fell in love with it. The kids were so, you know, there was such a rewarding job to work with them. And, uh, um, you know, there's, if you, if, you, if you can steer them in the right direction, there's so much hope for them. And yet, so frequently we do the wrong thing and it dashes those hopes. So I fell in love with it right away. And then a guy spoke in my class, a guy named Jerry Miller, who had closed all of the youth correctional facilities, the youth prisons in the state of Massachusetts during the 70s. This was now the 80s, so it was like a decade later. And uh, put the kids into community programs. There were no more kids in, in these big locked facilities, you know, that you, you read so much terrible things about. And the outcomes were fantastic. The kids did better in terms of education. They did better in terms of not getting rearrested, recidivism. And so uh, I became a real believer in a different way of doing things uh, right back then and kind of stuck with it. Oh, that's amazing. So it was kind of a little bit of a a chance that you happened to have that internship and then you were just, your eyes were opened. And I love the idea as well of um, someone coming into a classroom and just introducing an idea or talking about their experience or story and then that carrying on to then, you know, you never know you're planting a bunch of seeds so you never know what will come from it. So that's I, really- I mean, That's why I like, whenever college professors ask me to speak, I always say yes, because I like yeah. it, that kind of thing speak in my class. You know, it was interesting because when he was speaking, he was, he was saying bad things about facility staff, and I was one, right? And so I actually got mm. in an argument with him, and then I, I followed him down the hall. I kept arguing with him. And by the end of the, uh, by the time I got to the elevator, he basically had offered me a job. So um, it, you know, really, it really did kind of, for me, whenever I think about my staff, when I, when I ran these systems and, and some of the horrible things that the staff were beating kids up and sexually assaulting them and, 
there was some staff that were selling them drugs, not all staff, but you know, it was a 200 bed facility. So everybody knew who was doing it. You can't, mm. you can't be beating a kid up in a 200 bed facility and everybody else mm. doesn't know, right? Think about mm. like a small middle school. And so I know that staff engage in a tremendous amount of rationalization. Mm. I'm a good person. I wouldn't do that. I can't, you know, snitch on my brethren, correctional officer. So I'm going to turn a blind eye, but I'm still a good person. And I was already doing that. You know, I, that's why I argued with Jerry Miller when mm. he spoke in my class about closing the facilities down, because I believed that I was a good person and I was working in a facility. So it must be a good thing. And mm. it's not the way it works. You can be a good person and you can be working in a facility that's doing damage to kids. You can be a good member of parliament and you build a facility that's too big and, and mm. it does damage to kids. Just because you're a good person with good intentions doesn't mean the outcomes of what you do are good. We have to be really circumspect about what we do. And if Jerry hadn't woken me up, you know, I, I could have been a lifer in these places. Wow. And I see these guys, you know, I, I, I know the guys that are lifers. I see them. They spent 40 years working in juvenile corrections and they're all bound up in a mass of rationalizations despite the plain evidence about how much harm these places do to kids. And I'm not any better than them. I got lucky. I got Jerry to speak yeah. in my class and I, I got a job with him. And if I hadn't been, I might be one of those rationalizers today. That's an incredible insight that I'm sure allows you to really um, empathize and speak to and work with staff. Um, in those facilities as well, because you've been there, you understand that. And I think you made that excellent point about us. We're just so, all of us, I think, in any form of social services, we're, we're there because we're trying to do the right thing. And so we'll, we'll hold on to at all costs our identity as a good person doing the right thing rather than remove ourselves from it and think critically about what's happening outside of our actions. So after, a, sorry. I used to spend a ton of time on the units with mm. the staff for exactly that reason, because I knew I'd wear them down. Like at first, mm. they were very polite and didn't want to engage, because they thought, you know, this is a hierarchical, it's like a quasi-military system. It's hierarchical, the boss is right, or even when he's wrong, you don't tell him he's wrong. But after a while, you know, if you're there long enough, people will tell you that they think you're an idiot, like because you're trying to treat the kids too good. And that's, that's a teachable moment. So mm. that's what I, I used to spend so much time on a midnight shift because, you know, I wanted, I wanted them to break down finally and tell me why they thought putting the kids in solitary for 23 hours a day was such a good idea. And then once they did, then we could, then we could have the discussion. But while it was all about polite or while it was all about hierarchy, you can't have that conversation. That's so, so uh, true. Yeah, it was, it was really, I have to say, it was, a, it was a hard, 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 hard job, but it was a learning experience like no other. Absolutely. And I think you've got to start from that sort of bottom up, you know, be introduced to the system at its bottom level and its people so you can understand it completely to be able to create the kind of change that you have. So where did you go after that sort of direct practice role in the facility? Yeah, it was interesting. So, so I, you know, it was a little home, like I said, like a group home. And then uh, I went to work for Jerry, which was a nonprofit, and it was an advocacy and alternatives to incarceration. It's kind of like Jesuit Social Services. He mm. did a combination of direct services and also 
some research, some advocacy, we wrote reports. And I, I stayed with that. I thought that's what I was going to do forever. I never anticipated going back into government. Uh, and then, uh, so I was running a nonprofit in San Francisco. Then I ran one in New York, in, uh, I'm sorry, Washington, D.C., both of which I founded. And they were both, you know, devoted to reducing mass incarceration for adults and kids. And then the mayor of D.C. offered me to run the job of running the juvenile facility, the juvenile system. And I never, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't apply for that job. Basically, the deputy mayor called me and I had been a blistering critic of the facility. I'd written op-ed pieces. I was a commentator on the local public radio station. And I said I would never kennel my dog in, in Oak Hill, which is the name of our facility. It's like you're... Cherry Creek, uh, mm -hmm. never mind put a kid in it who I cared about. And so, and the mayor was running it. I mean, it was the mayor's facility, uh, but he had been sued and there was a motion to put the department into receivership, which means the court would have taken it over, which is a terribly embarrassing thing for a politician to have judge take their facility over because it's unconstitutional. And, and so I was kind of like a I don't know if you have this phrase in Australian football, but I was a Hail Mary pass. That's what they call it in American football when the game's coming um, down to the end and you just throw the ball as far as you can and hope one of your guys catch it. They call it I a don't Hail think Mary we have pass. that, but yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. kind of a Hail Mary pass. They, they, you know, the mayor was like, well, let's, let's give it a shot. And, yep. and he was interviewing me, you know, his, his, his administrator, a city administrator was there and he was asking me all these kind of bureaucratic questions. I was like, you know, I was running a nonprofit with 50 staff. I don't, I don't know how to balance an $80 million budget. And I think we had like 800 staff. And finally I said, look, you got me. I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to all these questions. I, I said, uh, what I know is I was going to be the 20th director of that department in 19 years, right? More than one a year. And I knew a bunch of the previous directors and they were nice, well-meaning, lifetime bureaucrats. And maybe you just didn't get the right, nice, well-meaning, lifetime bureaucrat, or maybe that's not the model. Maybe you want somebody who's not one of those things, who's willing to mix it up and think outside the box and isn't worried about when his next correctional job is gonna come. Cause I don't, mm. I wasn't looking for this job and I'm not looking for the next job. Mm. And so, the mayor bought that and he said, okay, let's give this guy a shot. Wow. So it was just this, it was time. It was like, we're just going to throw everything we have at it or just completely mix it up and see what happens, which is the perfect opportunity for a huge monumental shift, right? When your people are kind of handing over the power and saying, we don't know anymore. Um, so that must, you must've had a lot of, like, did you feel that you had a lot of influence going in where you're like, I can really shake things up? Yeah, I mean, there was a pending receivership motion. They didn't, they didn't lift the receivership motion until two years after I got there. Um, so any time the judge could have put the department into, the judge could have taken that department over any day. And yeah. the plaintiffs, who actually were my friends, the, the lawyers who were suing, assumed it would happen. They were saying, we have to figure out a way to get you to be the receiver if the court takes it over. But mm -hmm. they, they thought that it was going into receivership. So yeah, I had, I had a lot of influence. And um, do you know who Rahm Emanuel is? No, he was, he was um, uh, Obama's uh, chief of staff, President Obama's chief of staff, and then became mayor of Chicago. 
Um, and he's, he's a kind of Machiavellian guy, you know, he's a real player on the inside. And he's got a great statement uh, that is, uh, never let a crisis go to waste. And that's what we were in. We were in a crisis. And these, these places don't fix themselves easily. They really do need a jolt. Because um, mm. otherwise the status quo is so seductive. Um, people are scared. Most elected officials don't run for office so they can fix juvenile justice. Yeah. But they don't know that much about it. And when, 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 you know, it, it's very tempting in situations where you don't know much about it and it's politically charged, like crime and justice is in Australia and America, um, to just cling to the status quo because you feel like that's the safer bet. And when I met with your, your parliament about this issue, you know, that you set that up, Jesuit Social Services arranged that. I testified before parliament. I met with the MP who was on top of this issue. It reeked of that. Mm. And I smelled it in a second because that's what U.S. used to reek of. Mm. Everybody was, was, was playing the safest bet they could uh, because they don't really know what the other thing is. Because everybody mm. who's an expert that they talk to has been playing that safe bet their whole lives. And mm. um, we, were, we were there. We were completely there in the U.S. And that's been changing. But it um, it, it is exact. And what, what frustrated me so much was I could see that path because we had been on exactly that path. We were, mm -hmm. all of our politicians, even the liberal, even the, even the progressive ones, I know liberal means a different thing in Australia than it does in the U.S., but even our Democrats were not with us for many, many years. They were like, yeah, we know this is stupid. We know kids get abused there, but we're going to go with it anyway because we won't get reelected if we don't. And, and, and it had disastrous effects. And I just, when I met with your folks, that's exactly the same kind of conversations we were having. And I just didn't have much patience for that conversation. Of course not. When it, it's, it, um, like you said, people can rationalize it to themselves and like, I'm a good person. I just have to do this to make the change. But when it comes down to it, it's that individual need for a job or position or status or whatever that's blocking potentially, right, blocking us from, from progressing. So what was one of the first sort of big changes that you made? In, in D.C.? In yeah. Washington, D.C.? Um, yeah. closed the solitary confinement unit. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew that as long as staff could rely on locking kids down 23 hours a day, that they would, uh, and that they would never develop the muscle of um, de-escalation, of relying on heavy programming of, of engaging with the kids as you know it's a tiring job and you know just to to sort of you know, be on my staff side for a second it, it, you know these kids are frustrating and they, they've lived rough lives uh they've been desperate poverty many of them have emotional mental disorders or uh, uh educational issues they're a challenging group of kids and God, if you could just lock them in a room, you could get rid of the most challenging ones. It was just too seductive. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we did a massive amount of training with the staff before we did it. And lots of focus groups and sitting around the table and figuring out how to do it. But the question wasn't, are we going to do it? The mm -hmm. question was, how are we going to do it? Because I'm going to do it. Like, mm -hmm. and I'll let you guys put the kid in his room for an hour to calm down, 
but I'm not letting you lock somebody down 23 hours a day. We're driving these kids crazy. And mm -hmm. I know it's doable. And so we, we, that, was, that was part of what we did. Uh, and we also got a massive amount of training uh, mm -hmm. to help with the culture change process. So that, you know, it wasn't like I was just throwing you out there. Like if you don't have the skills to de-escalate when a mm -hmm. kid's going off, just closing solitary is not going to give you those skills. So then yep. the harm is going to come to either you or the kid or both. Mm -hmm. So we did a ton and ton of training. And I, I literally took my staff out of the units and sent them away for a month, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for them, they had only had like two weeks of training 20 years ago. So wow. I, a, a month, they didn't see a kid for a month. I had them with training on how to work with young people, how to deescalate, how to run groups, how to make a day full of programming so that there was some alternative. And while they were away, I did this one unit at a time, I got the units refurbished, put mm. comfortable couches in, put rugs down, painted them, and we got all sorts of dignitaries from Washington, D.C. So Maya Angelou came up, you know, a famous poet. Wow. And the mayor came up, a bunch of judges, a bunch of council members, and a bunch of community volunteers and with the kids, refurbished the units. So I literally have pictures of the mayor standing there painting with a bunch of the kids. And the mayor was like, hey, you're missing spots over. You know, like he got into it, you know, he was really into it. And wow. rolling the rugs out and moving the couches in and planting flowers so that when staff came back from their training, there was a tangible physical manifestation of it. This was, by the way, in the mayor's seventh year as mayor, you know, he had two terms. He had one four-year term. He was in the end of his second year, second four-year term, seven years in. He had never been to the facility. Wow. And this was a, a facility that was had a pending receivership motion. And he had actually never been there. And mm -hmm. so it was a sign to my staff that, like, because if you're the 20th director of a place in 19 years, it's really hard for staff to believe in you. Because you're mm. like a bus. There's going to be another one along in five minutes. Why should I, why should I believe yeah. in you? I'm going to close. I'm going to trust that we don't need a solitary confinement unit and I'm not going to come to harm. Because what? This guy says so. And mm. so I had to prove to them that this yeah. was going to be different. And the mayor coming up, my Angelou, council members, judges, the physical improvements, the month of training. This was all a way to show them this was not going to be business as usual because they weren't stupid. The reason they were cynical is because they had hoped before. Somebody mm -hmm. had convinced them. One of those 19 other guys or gals had convinced them to hope, and then they felt like a chump, maybe several mm -hmm. of them, and they felt like a chump several times. So you know, at a certain point, you don't want to feel like a chump anymore. Um, mm -hmm. So we really, needed to, we really needed to supercharge it if they were going to they were going to buy into it and, and we mm. did and they that's remarkable that's that's so wonderful and i love that the young people did you say the young people were involved in in redoing the yeah. units i think that's just amazing because you know they're taking pride in their space and owning it and being a part of their what is their home for long periods of time and you know, you're maybe less likely to chuck around a couch or punch a hole through a wall that you painted no, um no question. Yeah. Guard it a little and say, hey, man, don't, don't, don't do that. I think. <laughs>
Yeah, plus they really <laughs> dug meeting with the mayor and Maya Angelou. They really felt important. Mm, they don't feel that way a lot. Our kids don't get to feel that way a lot. Oh, absolutely. And that, you know, that somewhat there are people taking pride in the space and that are interested to get to know them and that are working. And like you said, a lot of people, you know, words are kind of can be empty. You can promise lots of things. And every kind of probably anyone that comes in to manage anything new is like, right, we're going to do all this stuff. But to actually make it happen and show them very literally by changing the environment and the space and investing in the staff through training, I just think, yeah, it's a pretty incredible move, but it's obviously what needed to happen to, to shift things completely. And so did you notice really quite big shifts in, in staff and, and in behavior when they came back? Yeah, it was very interesting. Well, first of all, we, we got enough uh, money up to hire the trainers as coaches. Mm. So they, they were there initially almost every day. Because wow. what's yep. going to happen is the kids are going to test this new thing. Because mm. we didn't change the kids. The kids were there, right? So mm. they knew that before, the way they were restrained by, were, was literally by four big football players that used to come and grab them and tackle them and beat them up and stick them in their room, right? Mm. And so now... I'm emotional and I remember that you did this to me once before. So I'm going to be back in your face and see how this goes. And that's a moment where, you know, a month's training is great, but it's still a month's training. You've been working at mm. 20 years and you're used to hitting a little button on your lapel and four big football players are going to beat this kid up. Right. Mm. And now you have to, you know, this kid just spit you in, in your face literally and called you everything but a child of God. And instead of, hitting that button and having the four football players beat him up. Now the way it's going to go is your partner's going to deal with that kid while he's going off and you're going to go in, you're going to clean your face off, regain your composure and go out and hold a group session on dignity and respect. Now let's just be honest. That's hard for anyone. Right. And mm -hmm. in that frustrating moment when maybe you've worked a forced double, which means you're on hour 15 of work that day mm -hmm. uh and you're 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 at your limit that's a hard thing and, and you're angry and the, the vision that comes in your face with that anger is my face right because mm. if it wasn't for me you could call the football players but you can't do yeah. that anymore that's yeah. not an option and so i needed my i need coaches there to say okay okay no i know i don't know i know this is mm. hard Let's talk mm -hmm. about what you're going to do right now while your buddy takes care of the kid and, and, and then maybe yeah. hold your hand a couple times first. But then, you know, as time went on, of course, the staff realizes that you can, you can train yourself and you can train the kids to behave differently. You can, mm -hmm. you cannot, you can get control of issues without physical. And frankly, I have to say women were better at it because women were never going to win the physical fight anyway. Uh, with yeah. the, you know, the kids and they've, they've got other skill sets and then you know we turn to physical stuff well I think yeah de-escalating is the key word I think women are pretty good at being like for de-escalating you have to be like I hear you I understand you um person on the other side and I think women are quite usually have been kind of trained to do that whereas men sort of that escalation and arcing up can be really you know that's conditioned into them too so you know it's a whole new skill set to empathize understand communicate instead of take that fight 
reaction when you're in when you feel you're in danger take the fight reaction but I think that makes so much sense to sort of have that support follow you back into the space because so often we go out and get training and now it's like cool change everything that you've done that you yeah have been ingrained responses for you said up to 20 years um and then just bit by bit start to see that it is possible and have some faith and trust in that process because that's sort of that tipping point is it isn't it where it's sort of like now we can kind of see what's possible we're gonna invest even more so how long were you in this role for and and how long did you operate uh, this facility five years Uh, years. so when i got there there were 280 kids in a 200 bed facility so we were way overcrowded and it was bad it was really bad Mm. and when i left there was 60 kids in a 60 bed facility so Mm. we were also moving the kids out into the community into community programs it wasn't just about fixing the facility yeah far too many of them didn't need to be in that facility uh and or Mm. they didn't need to be in for as long as they were so we cut the length of stay till about six months and then mostly though we diverted the kids into wraparound services in the community uh and you know with the amount of money it costs to put a kid into one of these places you can buy an awful lot of services in the community and if you do Mm then you really, uh, you really have a chance at helping a kid turn his life around. And, uh, you know, I was glad the facility was better, but I was actually prouder about the, the community programs. And we really worked closely with our community, worked very closely with the African-American community because almost all the kids, 90-something percent of the kids were African-American. The rest of the kids were Latino. There was not one white kid sent to me really? in five years. Yep. Wow. Dixie's majority minority, but it ain't that majority minority. They were white kids committing crimes, but they were getting diverted. So I was like, wow. well, you know what? If we can divert the white kids, we can divert these kids. So, uh, you know, we set up a lot of community-based programs, and that got it down to the 60 that really, at that time, we felt those were the 60 that kind of needed to be in a building. But now, that same 60-bed facility, I think there's like 20 kids in there. Wow. So from 200 and something, 280, did you say, to 20? Yeah. That's remarkable. DC's big. DC's got like 700,000 people in it. DC's, it's not a small place. Wow. We're still incredibly proud of that transformation. That's amazing. When I go back, I'm like, beyond belief. And a facility we replaced, a 60-bed facility is off the hook. It's got a basketball court and a beautiful... uh, uh, theater, the kids perform, you know, Shakespeare and stuff like that. It's, you know, the other thing too is I found out it's, it's sort of interesting. You know, like these facilities, they just they close off on themselves and they feel like the only way for us to fix it is to be more and more restrictive. And really it's kind of the opposite, right? So I started letting community people in, in great mm. numbers. Volunteers from colleges would come in, like students to tutor the kids. We had a family group, like a group that was made up of mothers of kids that were locked up. I gave them office space inside the facility, right? Literally oh, wow. inside the facility. Wow. Right? And the public defenders, I gave them space inside the facility. And um, we had this theatrical group. There's a Shakespeare theater in DC. They got the kids, the kids performed in this competition, this high school competition, and we won. And we beat basically all the schools we were against 
were these overwhelmingly white schools. They were either private schools from within DC or public schools from the white suburbs. And we were the best ensemble. It was, it was Macbeth and our lady Macbeth won the, uh, she won the best actor award. Um, and, and uh, you know, community groups were aching to come in. Like mm. some of the best restaurants in DC came in and did cooking things with the cameras. <laughs> You know, once you open the door, and my staff was like, no, Vinny, they're going to bring drugs. And I was like, I kid you not, <laughs> the kids were testing positive for marijuana more frequently after they had been locked in my facility for a month than they were upon entering the facility, which meant that it was easier to score pot in my facility than on the streets of the District of Columbia. Wow. I was like, how can they possibly... <laughs> You think the chefs are going to bring drugs in? Like, the drugs are already here. What are you talking about? And by the way, you know who's bringing them in. It's that guy. I just can't yeah. catch him. It's a guy with the <laughs> nicest car in the, in the lot. This guy's a correctional officer. He owns like a $200,000 Mercedes. He's selling mm. drugs to the kids. Don't tell me I can't bring the Shakespeare people in. What are they going to do? Cut into his uh. business? So, you know, it, when we opened it up, it was the opposite. It, the shining the light of community people on a facility mm. made it better, not worse. Because mm. these people aren't coming in and thinking, oh, we should help them figure out better ways to beat the kids up, right? That, or mm. we should help them figure out how to sexually assault the kids or sell the kids drugs. No, they were like the voice of the community was walking in that facility. Damn it, clean up. Mm. And that's mm. what so, so true. Like community. you've got eyes eyes everywhere, people invested, because it can feel, I've, I'm a social worker and I've spent a bit of time in Parkville, one of our youth prisons, and it can feel like another world, because it is so hard to get in there, and it's, yeah, it's just cut off from reality, and these incredibly long shifts creates a very, I think, I'd imagine, like, I haven't worked in one of them, but a very intimate environment where it's, yeah, insular, um, and so, but I also think bringing in the community, it must have been so excellent for the kids to feel like important and valued and, and be connecting and, you know, to, be, to just to like, yeah, have their strength celebrated or learn a new skill. That's, that's huge. You know, and being exposed to the college students like Georgetown students used to come in all the time with tutoring, but tutoring, schmootering, like, you know, it, it was really more about what kind of conversations they were having. Mm. All of a sudden, these kids are sitting there and they're talking, and they don't have a lot of exposure to people that have gone to college, right? Because that's mm. not what their families and their neighbors, most of them, like my, like my neighbor growing up, most of my friends didn't go to college. Most of my mm. relatives didn't go to college. And so I knew that these kids didn't have a lot of exposure to people going to college. All of a sudden, you know, they're talking about their philosophy class or they're talking about their theater class or their English class with a college student. And they're feeling like, hey, I can go to toe-to-toe -to -toe with this student. Mm. I'm smart. Mm. Uh, it was, yeah. It was, it was just a, it was a, there was so many flowers blossomed once we once we brought the community in and then of course the community now has a stake so every year mm. when we you know we used to have oversight hearings every year at the oversight hearings the community would would come and testify and that meant to my my uh, getting back to the politicians that they saw that the community cared about this in a different way they didn't want the kids mm. just to come out and be able to commit crimes and all of that stuff. But like there was one guy whose son was killed by one of my kids on a home pass before I got there, like a year before I got there. And, you know, he was outraged 
about my department. And I said, Kenny, come in, <laughs> come in, come talk mm. to the kids. Like, what, what do you want to do? Because he mm. had started a victim's movement group. Mm. I said, how do you want, you tell me how you want to interact with my department and my kids. Mm. I'm not mm. afraid of you. Like, I, I didn't do this and mm. I don't wish it on your child and I don't wish it on you. Tell, help me fix it. And so Kenny used to come in, he used to meet with the kids. And every single time we had an oversight hearing, Kenny came. Every wow. single time. And now he brought a bunch of victims with him. Whose kids, you know, the other crimes my kids committed. No, it was, they were tough kids. They did bad stuff. And, you know, he would say, look, Benny's not doing everything perfect, but we support the way he's going. And, you know, mm. there's, there's, we all run from this. And that's what got me crazy about meeting with your politicians, the, 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 what, it's the Liberal Party and what's the other party? Labor. Labor. Labor's in control right now, right? And the Labor um, say, Well, yeah, in Victoria, yes. It's liberal right. liberal right. Australia. Yeah. Right. And so the Labor Party people were doing the same thing that the Dem Democrats did in the US in the nineties and two thousands. They were trying to act like they were tougher than the Republicans. Mm. Your guys were trying to act like they were tougher than the liberals. And mm. frankly, the way the voters usually perceive it at is, well, if it's all about tough, might as well pick the real tough party, not the fake tough party. Mm. And that's what, that's what my Democrats learned. Until they could change the conversation to, there's a better way to deal with young people when they mess up than sticking them in some place, no matter what we name it. You could name it Oak mm. Hill, you could name it Cherry Creek, you could name it, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. It's still going to be a prison for kids. And if it's all about prisons, I might as well pick the liberals on, instead of the Labor Party, because they're the real prison guys, not the fake prison guys. Mm. And that's what the Democrats learned. They got their butts whooped by trying to be fake, tough on crime people. Uh, and then once they were able to have a different conversation, which is what's happening now in the U.S., is why our incarcerated populations are declining so much. In New York City, with Mayor Bloomberg as mayor, we have nobody in state custody. Nobody. We took wow. them all back, and there's 100 kids in any form of custody in New York City. And New York City is an 8.6 million person city. And custody for us is six bed homes and wow. 12 bed homes. It's a house. If you yep. walk by it on a block, you wouldn't know you were walking by a juvenile facility. It's like the mm. place I worked at when I started. It's just a yeah. house in the neighborhood. And so it's not a 100 bed or whatever bed Cherry Creek or Oak Hill, um, mm. which is, you know, I'm sure that they have every intention of it being a nice rehabilitative facility. And 10, 15 years from now, it's going to be just like the place that the kids broke out of. Yeah, um, Malmesbury, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I think like what I loved what you said about the community and, and um, the group of victims who were participating was I think when you lift the veil and involve people and un they understand the mechanisms and everything at play, they feel they have some power and control back and then can make informed decisions. But when you kind of keep up the veil and keep everyone out, um, you're going to make the fear-based decision um, because you, you can't see, I think, which is the reality so so you just mentioned some pretty amazing stats from new york and and how many kids are in custody there that i imagine wasn't the case when you were working in in dc so 
you, and I know you're a, a big part of that shift. So what, what kind of happened after you left? Or was it happening at the same time? It was here or New York. It was both. So yeah. I, I, both in DC and New York, because I was yep. probation commissioner in New York yep. and, and head of juvenile justice in DC. Um, we, um, I was able to, to have one of my deputies take over when I left. So mm. both the DC system and the New York system are run by people that came up under me. Yeah. And none of them had worked in government before. They were both from nonprofits. Mm -hmm. So now they're government people, they're running the system. And so it stabilized and stayed the same, you know, or improved, frankly, because I, I was, I was a much better reformer and not that great an implementer. So I needed a good implementer and the implementers took over, which is terrific. Um, New York, uh, yeah, we, so the kids were being brutalized uh, in the state system. A couple of kids had died. Uh, Justice Department investigation and lawsuit, front page New York Times headlines. And Mayor Bloomberg was you know, really kind of furious about it. Um, we also, the way it works in New York is when you send somebody to the state juvenile justice system, you pay for half of the price. And it was at the time it was 250,000 per kid per year. So every time we sent a kid, it would be $125,000. And they were getting beat up and coming back. I think it was like 80% recidivism rate. So, you know, I convinced the mayor to take them all back. I said, look, you know, we can do better than this. Just see if the state will give them all back to us. We're like 500 of them at the time. And let us run programs for them in the neighborhoods and let us get these nonprofits to have homes for them. Uh, if they need to be in a home, if they can't go home mm. and service. And so there were about 500 when we started. Now it's down to 100. So you know, it's a big decline. And that decline occurred in about four years. Um, and uh, because the, when the kids came, we kept that 125,000 per kid. And the state gave us most of their 125,000. So, and it was block granted. So mm. now we got. He really had the money, he really had somewhere around 200,000 per kid. And so we didn't build a thing. That's the problem with when you build mm. it, you, you gotta pay for it. Mm. And so we didn't build anything real quick. We just contracted for these small homes and contracted for a bunch of kind of robust wraparound in-home services for the kids. So when you have that, then your judges have a whole menu of options. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes they put a kid in a building, but four out of five times they sent the kids home with these wraparound services that, and the judges helped design them and the prosecutors mm. and the cops, as well as the community, as well as education, as well as social services. They were all in a room when we designed them. I was mm. like, I'm going to go buy these programs, but I am not the marketplace for these programs. You are judge. Mm. You are prosecutor. If you don't like them, you're going to send kids to locked facilities. Yeah. So what do you want? <laughs> you tell me what you want. I'll go buy it. What I will do is once I buy it, I'm going to evaluate it. And if it's a stupid program, I'm going to, I'm going to dump it, even if you do want it. I'm not going to mm. keep a program that's not working, but you don't want a program that's not working either. So, yeah. so they, once they had that opportunity and they knew that the programs were going to be like serious, then they used, they used placement, which is a euphemism for incarceration, much less frequently. Mm, that makes so much sense. But 
and it's such a it's simple but i imagine it wasn't done before like i haven't i haven't heard of anything like that here we're getting everyone into the room and having very tangible access to those to those programs and understanding exactly what they are rather than kind of sitting removed in a building and hoping that this nice sounding community-based program is going to do the trick um because the judges and the prosecutors have all the power and none of the money mm. and the executive branch me i i was the executive branch had all the money and none of the power all yeah. i could do is accept the kids uh and i could pay for programs and i had to pay for the facilities but i couldn't move the kids only yeah. the judge could do that and the prosecutor was a big influence on that so mm. i said all right I'll, I'll share my money if you share your power <laughs> like, like oh, I can't, can't yeah open up a bunch of programs if you put 500 kids in facilities because i got to pay for the 500 facilities mm. so but they got that and, and you know moments like when you decide what facility to build like we did with cherry creek are the moments you get to cut that deal once mm -hmm. you open Cherry Creek, you're going to staff it full of government employees who are not going to be too interested in losing their jobs, and no matter how good community programs are. So mm -hmm. that's why it's, those threshold moments are the times you get to reinvent stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think what I love what you just said about, you know, everyone being in the same room is, is the collaboration and the reconnection to what you're trying to all achieve which is sort of you know supporting young kids to thrive and to not commit crimes and to create safer communities and like you're all ultimately trying to do the same thing but unless you yeah work together uh collaborate it's it's just not possible because there's just too many competing forces as you said and you sort of identified them all and been like all right how can we make this work and i think that's that's pretty remarkable and yeah and it, and it works too yeah. i mean crime in new york city juvenile crime dropped twice as much in the four years after because juvenile crime is coming down in new york city mm -hmm. so dropped by like 20 something percent in the four years before we did close to home which is this and then it dropped 53 percent in the wow. next four years twice as twice as fast and yeah. the kids the evaluation showed that the kids uh were uh, gaining two years of uh schooling in the six months they were in the facilities 90% of them went home to a parent or guardian. 90% of them went uh, out to a program. So it wasn't just they didn't commit crimes. They were engaged in programs. They were reuniting mm. with their families. They were gaining years in school. Uh, now, you know, it wasn't perfect because the kids coming out, they're, they're, they still dropped out of school way too frequently. But hey, that piece poke in the eye. It did way better than the institution. Mm. Institutions mm. harm kids. They cost a lot of money and they do a lot of damage. They just yep. do. Yeah. And that's why nobody would want their own kid to go to one. None of the members of parliament who voted to build, build Cherry Creek, they would fight like hell to keep their kids out of Cherry Creek. Mm -hmm. Even though they said, oh, oh don't worry, no, it's going to be a rehabilitative facility. Yeah. If your kid was a jerk and did some stupid stuff, you'd be hiring the best lawyer in town to keep him out of that place. Yeah. It's so true and representative of privilege as well, because they probably would get them out of that place. Um, yeah. And I they, like yeah. An infinitesimally small chance of ever getting locked up. Yeah, it's so true. And it's, it's interesting, the public perception here, when I've been having a lot of conversations with people, particularly around Raise the Age, which has been, um, it's been on the media landscape a little bit. People are now understanding what it is and they're realizing a lot for the first time that our age of legal responsibility is 10. Um, and when I talk to them about it, 
often they'll say, no, no, aren't they just in like a home? Like a, they, they think that the small base facilities exist and that that's where they are. And I was like, no, 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 it's, it's an actual prison. And you know, I've spent time in them and they look like an adult prison. It's pretty much exactly the same thing. And um, I think once they realize that everyone, most people are like dead against it, but it's just, it's sort of remained behind the scenes. And I wonder like, did you have much involvement in like campaigning or public perception and, and like how, how are you able to shift the perception of the public who are voting in all these like key decision makers? Oh, we did a ton of stuff to, to interact with the public around this. Um, in DC, I was very much a retail guy on this. I was going to church groups and community mm. meetings. We brought the kids with us as much as we could. So I every year when we did, had an oversight hearing, not only did the community show up, but I brought a, a bunch of kids from the facility to, to speak about their experiences. Uh, I, I brought them to community meetings. You know, I wanted this, the community to experience them as human beings because, mm -hmm. you know, when they commit a crime, they're kind of disembodied. You know, you hear about mm. the crime, you don't hear anything about the kid and what, what, you know, went on with them before they did it. Not that that's an excuse, but it, 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 does, it does humanize them. It does help you understand uh, with enough context to maybe consider different kinds of policies. Because uh, I think if people just think, you know, the kid was just a bad kid. He came out of nowhere and did a bad thing. They're, those are the kinds of kids you want to just punish. But if you understand what went on before and that there's mm -hmm. a reasonable plan, that, that's a different conversation. So we did a lot of media, a lot of communications, both at the sort of wholesale level, you know, with the Washington Post and radio stations and TV, like when the kids performed Shakespeare, I invited the media, when the kids played football, we brought the news, well, we won the city championships in football. We brought the media to that. Mm. I got to meet the kids. I brought the kids to city council where I got them these leather jackets. You know, that's what we do in the States when, when your football team wins, you get a leather jacket with the football team's logo on it. So I brought them all. I gave the leather jackets to the city council. The kids didn't know they were getting it. They thought they were just gonna get like a certificate from the city council. And the city council members took these jackets out, put them on the kids. Oh. Trust me, the cameras were going crazy <laughs> over that. And the kids yeah. never forgot that. They never, and their parents were there in the city council meetings. I mean, these kids are our kids, man. And they've done mm. a bad thing. We can't forget that. We can't excuse it. We can't say it's okay. But the job is to make it not happen again, not to mm. just mindlessly punish them. And so... I had no problem looking at DC community in the eye and saying, we're going to make this better, but you got to, you got to come along with a song. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, I, these kids are our kids. And I think that sort of collective ownership of them is a really beautiful way to look at it and to hold them accountable, but also to support them and then to see, you know, their potential and make sure that they know it. Um, the last question I'm going to ask you, Vinny, is um, I think I've got a sentiment already just from, from that last statement, but what is it that, you know, um, what is it that drives you to do the work that you do? Like, why, why do you do it? What's at the heart of it for you? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I always felt some level of unfairness about it, you know, that uh, the things that me and my friends did when we were kids in Brooklyn, uh, that if we were black kids, 
that we would have gotten a worse deal. Like the cops rolled up on us a bunch of times and unless somebody was doing something really violent, we never ended up in the back of that squad car because they saw a future for us, you know? Mm. They, they, they don't want to mess our lives up. Maybe they'd kick our ass, which did happen sometimes, and maybe they'd bring us home to our mother, at which point we'd get our ass kicked a different way. But, but we were not going to get a formal, right? Nobody was going to formalize that unless it was a mm. you know, serious crime. And, you know, in America, I've, I've always felt we have an excellent juvenile justice system. It's the system that kicks into gear when a white middle-class kid gets in trouble and does a bad thing. Mm. All sorts of resources are brought to bear. People think of the alternative. They, they really kind of try to push for the right thing to do so that this young person can live the life that we all want them to live. And that's all I want for these kids, these black and brown mm. kids that fill our institutions. And I, I, I think that, that drove me from, from, from when I was a kid seeing that's that's an injustice that's just mm. unacceptable. Absolutely. Oh, I love that injustice. You have a very yeah, a keen sense of justice and it and it really comes through and I don't know. I mean I'm in awe of the incredible things that you've been able to achieve and that you've done and I know our listeners will will be too. And it's a really sort of um a beacon of hope for us and something to look up to and and keep talking about in Australia. And, and sharing a story today, I think it's going to help do that. Yes. So, you know, when when I when we were at our worst in America, uh, in I think it was '96 or '97, we had 109,000 kids locked up in America, mm. and another 10,000 in adult prisons. Now we're down to 30,000, and I think 2,000 in adult prisons. Way too many still, as far as I'm mm. concerned. I think it's abominable but it beats the hell out of 109,000. Mm. And so, and state after state is closing their last facility. Some states are closing ones they just built. Wow. Um, so there's absolutely hope. Uh, mm. My only thing I would encourage your elected officials to do is try to do as many stupid and, ex in, try not to do as many stupid and expensive things as you possibly can before you get to figuring out the right stuff to do. We yeah. certainly are not an example of that in America. We did yeah. all the stupid stuff and spent all the money <laughs> to do all the damage before we figured out the right way to go. I would mm. urge your folks to learn from, from our mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you're on a really good path now. So even though there's 30,000, I'm sure it's dropping every day. Um, yeah, so that's, that's really exciting. Thank you so much for your time, Vinny. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot, Jess.